You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. Church, it's good to be here this morning. As Todd said, we're continuing our series on Acts, and our reading plan this week is Acts chapters 19 and 20, if you're following along with us. And I'm focusing on Paul's farewell to the Ephesian church leaders, which is Acts chapter 20, verses 13 to 24, which Todd just read for us. And before we go there, I just want to remind you of two prayers that I put in front of you at the beginning of our sermon series. And here they are. My first prayer that we're praying was this, for curiosity, that the Spirit of God would put a curiosity in your heart and life for more of himself. As Will, our pastor of young adults, shared last week, we want to see a curiosity around the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, and we're praying for that. And the second prayer request we have, and this comes from our series title, is The World Turned Upside Down. And we are praying that that same hunger and stirring in the book of Acts, that God would would get your attention, that he would move, and that he would minister in your life, because there is nothing like the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Friends, the book of Acts is marked by this hunger and this stirring for more of God. And we've been praying throughout this series for that holy unsettling, for that hunger in your life. Not only in your life, but in the life of our church and in the city of Lethbridge as we go through this book. And last Sunday, I was just simply reminded that God answers prayer. Because last Sunday... I mean, how do you look at that video of the baptisms? You have a girl up there, I think her name was Grace, who's dripping wet because she was baptized. And what's she doing? She's baptizing somebody else. Like there is a hunger and a stirring. The the testimonies we heard, the the stories and the preaching from Jer and Chelsea and Will about what's happening in our church and what's happening in our young people. There is a curiosity happening, my friends. There is a holy unsettling happening. There is a hunger. The spirit is very much alive here and present here and active here. So before we begin, I simply just want to pray over us once more. So would you join me in prayer? Lord God, we continue to pray for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. God, today we recognize that you and you alone are at work in this place and are at work in this people. And God, I pray for a continued posture of curiosity in your church and in your city. God, we want more of you. God, forgive us for settling with the box that we have you in. We do pray for a a holy stirring in your people. Lord, we don't want to manipulate or force, but we just simply want to invite you to do what is necessary in our lives and in our church for your kingdom come. God, I pray that you would just breathe fresh life into our souls. God, I pray that you would get us excited again for church, for you, and for the ministry that you've called us to. God, I pray that you would give us dreams and visions for the future. God, I pray that you would inspire, that you inspire us like you did for all those who were gathered together in the book of Acts. 
We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Oh, man. Oh, man, church. Exciting time as we go through this series together. Exciting time. So as we begin to look at Acts chapter 19 and 20, I want to begin with a reminder of the purpose of the book of Acts. And that purpose comes from chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's chapters 2 to 7. And in Judea and Samaria, Acts chapters 8 to 12. And to the ends of the earth, Acts chapters 13 to 28. See, friends, Acts is a testimony to the vision that Jesus casted over his disciples, a vision and mission that is still active for the church today. And as we come into chapters 19 and 20, hear me, the vision is still in effect. The testimony hasn't finished yet. These chapters are still testimonies, but they don't look as attractive and sexy as before. Hmm. I remind us of this because we don't often focus on the last half of the book of Acts. We focus on that kind of one to 10 chapter mark. Why? Because the first half is exciting. There's clear evidence of the spirit of God moving. I mean, thousands were added to the church in one day. Miracles were happening around every corner. People were selling all that they had. Baptisms on the side of the road. Paul's conversion story. And then the last chapters of the book of Acts, the book is still dynamic. We're still seeing the miraculous. But different themes start to emerge. Persecution. Opposition to the gospel. Faithfulness in the midst of trial. What does this mean for us? Well, here's what I think it means for us, friends. The same Holy Spirit that led thousands of people to come to Jesus in one day, the same Holy Spirit who used Peter's shadow to heal all people who encountered it. That same Holy Spirit is calling the Apostle Paul and the people of God to endure much suffering to endure hardship, and to endure prison. And friends, I think this is important for us because we need the whole testimony of Acts. We need the first and the second half of Acts. Why? So we don't fool ourselves into thinking that the Christian life is easy. That if the Holy Spirit is in you and in your ministry, that you will always experience Acts chapter 2 success or Acts chapter 2 results. See, Acts is a testimony to Jesus' vision, and that testimony doesn't stop until Acts chapter 28. And I'm not sure where that lands with you today, but know this, my friends. God is not finished with your life yet. Whether you are experiencing him in exciting and powerful ways like the first half of Acts, or whether you're questioning and wondering where he is, God is still working and still present and active in you. We need that more reminder this morning. 
So as we come into Acts chapters 19 and 20, we find ourselves in the middle of Paul's third missionary journey. And it's on this journey that the Spirit compels the apostle. Acts chapter 19, verse 21. Afterward, Paul felt compelled by the Spirit to go over to Macedonia and Achaia before going to Jerusalem. And after that, he said, I must go on to Rome. Friends, if there is one theme in the entire book of the Acts of the Apostles that we can't ignore, it's this. The church, the people of God, you and me, we are a led people. We are a led people. Of course, that means that we're led by others, we're led by people, we're led by leaders, of course. But don't make be mistaken. The church is not a democracy of public opinion or preference. The church is led by the Spirit of God. And friends, if we lose our ability to rely on and hear and obey the Spirit as the church, as the people of God, we have fundamentally lost our ability to impact and accomplish the vision that Jesus gave at the beginning of the book of Acts. We are a spirit people. Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. And that's why some people argue that actually the book of the Acts of the Apostles should not be called Acts of the Apostles, but Acts of the Holy Spirit. We are a Spirit-led people. No Spirit, no church. Paul was compelled by the Spirit as we come into our chapter here in chapter 20, it says that Paul was so compelled by the Spirit of God that he almost blew past Ephesus to get to Jerusalem. Let's pick it up at verse 16. Acts chapter 20, verse 16. Paul had decided to sail on past Ephesus for he didn't want to spend any more time in the province of Asia. He was hurrying to get to Jerusalem, if possible, in time for the festival of Pentecost. 17, but, circle that word, but. But when we landed in Miletus, I know Todd, tough, tough. When we landed in Miletus, he sent a message to the elders of the church of Ephesus asking them to come and meet him. I love that word, but. It challenged me. Why is the but there? I think, friends, because sometimes we get so focused on the mission that we miss the people in the process. I'm guilty of this. We're guilty of this. The church is guilty of this. I believe that the Holy Spirit who compelled Paul also stopped Paul. Say goodbye. Say goodbye. Get your friends here and pray together. Friends, rarely does the Spirit of God compel you without community engagement. Rarely will the Spirit of God compel you without community engagement. There's a temptation to believe today that being a Christian can be a solo endeavor. Me and Jesus, we're good. Right? The, the Spirit leads me. I don't need people. I don't need church. I don't need community. I think this but reminds us 
that we are led by the Spirit individually and together. And Jared's gonna tap into that next week. But I wanna just say that I appreciate Jared's leadership in my life. Because man, church, <laughs> when God, when I feel that God is speaking to me clearly, I am just like, boom, let's go, let's do this. Blinders on, blow away. And that's why I so appreciate Jer, because he brings that gift of discernment and wisdom and counsel. He doesn't ignore the spirit, but he sharpens that call in my life. Rarely will the spirit compel you without community engagement. We need each other for this. So here we are. Paul has stopped to say goodbye before he goes on to Jerusalem. Acts 20, 18 to 24. When they arrived, he declared, you know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I have endured the trials that come to me from the plots of the Jews. I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your home. I have had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and having faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. So we see here that Paul's farewell is given to the leaders of the Ephesian church, but I think what he's saying here can be applicable to all of us who follow Jesus. And there's three things I think we could take away from this today. Number one comes from verse 18. And really you see this throughout the first couple verses. But you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. Paul is talking about his life and drawing attention to his life. Number one, see, Paul is reminding us that ministry credibility starts with your life. Ministry credibility starts with your life. After this section of scripture, after this farewell, you'll see that the apostle actually gives his final preach to the Ephesian leaders. It's Acts 20, 25 to 35, right after this. What makes his preach so impactful is not necessarily the words he uses, but the life that backs it up. I remember an old preaching professor tell me, if the gospel you preach hasn't changed you first, you have no business preaching it to others. And today the church, all of us, but especially her leaders, need Paul's reminder, ministry credibility starts with your life. St. Francis of Assisi says this, and it's become a popular line. Preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Now, I love that. But I will challenge us. We use that as a bit of a cop-out. We take that to mean be a good person 
And then you don't have to tell anybody about your faith. Two problems with that. Number one, you could be a good person and not be a Christian. So you're going to have to use your words at some point today. And number two, and more importantly, being a good person is not the gospel. Hear this, my friends. Jesus did not come to make bad people good, but to bring dead people life. Ministry credibility, this is not a call to clean yourself up, to be a better example because people are watching you, because we've heard that. Paul's testimony is not a call to morality. It is indeed a testimony of the gospel, dead coming to life. I was living, but I wasn't alive. Paul had everything that the world had to offer him, but he counts it as nothing compared to knowing Christ. Jesus raised him. Jesus changed him. And Jesus continues to do an undeniable work in his life. Verse 21, I have one message for Jews and Gentiles alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and having faith in Jesus Christ. His message is not the necessity of trying to be a good person. Friends, if our kids grow up believing that all they need to do is the whole church thing, to follow the rules and be a good person, I've missed. We've missed. Because that is not the gospel. That is not my testimony. That is not Paul's testimony. That is not the testimony of the Acts of the Apostles. That is not the testimony that we preach here at E-Free. Does your life give credibility to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That I was dead and I was raised to new life that things were and are being put to death in my life, that things were and are being confessed and repented of, that things were and are being made new because I believe in resurrection, that indeed the old is gone and the new has come, that indeed Jesus through his Holy Spirit is leading and moving and healing and restoring and forgiving and making all things new because that's the gospel, my friends. That's the gospel. Does your life give credibility to the gospel? Why does this matter? Because ministry credibility, gospel credibility, starts with your life. What a reminder from Paul. So number one, ministry credibility starts with your life. Number two, and let me just kind of set this up a little bit. This whole paragraph reveals, I think, Paul's drive and Paul's passion for the gospel. I'd sum it up in verse 24. My life is worth nothing to me. My life is worth nothing to me. Unless I use it for finishing the work that's been assigned to me. Jesus is in Paul's top box. What is the top box? The reason of your existence. The why box. The purpose statement of your life where every decision and action and direction comes through. 
See, point number two, Paul reminds us that only one person and pursuit belongs in that top box of your life, and it is Jesus. And today, just like yesterday, and just like Paul's time, the sin of idolatry is very much hijacking us and hijacking the church from the abundant and the contented life that God has called us to. What is idolatry? Idolatry is simply putting something or someone in that box where only Jesus belongs. Let me give you a few examples that I've seen in my life and those around me. Marriage and family. I'll never forget a friend speaking at Young Adults. He's a pretty passionate guy, intense guy, just like the Apostle Paul. I love him for it. And his testimony hit me and hit a lot of us. And here's how he framed it. It was like God confronted me. If I said that you could be single with me or married without me, which would you pick? And I would have chosen the latter because Jesus had become so underwhelming for me. I became so preoccupied with the top box that wasn't him, but indeed marriage. Jesus got my attention with that. Friends, this might surprise you, but that top box of marriage and family has hijacked some of our young people in the church today. Because in the church, it's become like this be-all and end-all thing. Marriage and family, that's the top box. Many of us has chosen to substitute Jesus for marriage and family, and that's idolatry. Marriage and family is great, but it is not ultimate. Whenever I do a wedding, I often quote Tim Keller, who says this, marriage is not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. If you want a healthy marriage and family life, don't make your life about marriage and family. Make it about Jesus. If you want a healthy marriage and family life, don't make your life about marriage and family. Make it about Jesus. What a reminder for us this morning. Indeed, some of us need to reevaluate our pursuits and our top box what or who is in that top box? What about freedom and autonomy? Is that your top box? Is that your why? You know, no one could tell me how to live, what to do, or what to think. I'm free and I am autonomous. That's my pursuit. Verse 22 and 24, jail and suffering is awaiting me, says the apostle. Paul could have remained a free person, but he takes on suffering. Why? For the sake of the gospel. Though freedom and autonomy are good things, they aren't in his top box. Willingly lays them down for the sake of the gospel. It's kind of weird to say but your pursuit of freedom and autonomy is actually hijacking you from true freedom. Your pursuit of freedom and autonomy 
is hijacking you from true freedom because Paul shows us here that true freedom is found in Jesus. What about reputation? What will or do people think of me? Is that the top box that's driving your life? Are you more concerned with what people think than what indeed God thinks? Sure, I'll follow Jesus just as long as it's convenient for me. And he doesn't call me to do anything uncomfortable or which might challenge my reputation. Friends, I've been here many times and I don't use this word lightly, hijacked by what people think, expect, want, or like. And again, as long as reputation remains in the top box of your life, you are missing out on the abundant and contented life that Jesus has for you. What about success and security? For some of us, career is the be-all and the end-all. Everything in life revolves around my career. That's my top box. You know, the Apostle Paul, he was mentored by a, nine, by a man named Gamaliel. And what, he was one of the most esteemed rabbis in his time. Paul was being fast-tracked to being a prominent Pharisee. He knew success. He saw the path. He was going to become an elite. But Jesus had a different plan for him. And he used Paul's knowledge. He used Paul's Roman citizenship. He used Paul's leadership ability. And he used Paul's network to further his kingdom. But Jesus did not allow success and security to occupy space in that top box. And Paul gladly laid it down. I count it as nothing compared to knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. Think about how we talk about education. Right, what does this mean for us as we start to reimagine our lives around a top box of Jesus Christ? Why do I get an education? Well, we say, well, to get a good job, to secure my future. But I wonder, with Jesus at the top, I wonder if that causes us to answer that question a little differently. Ultimately, I get an education not to secure my future and get a good job, but so that I could be better equipped to serve the kingdom of God. That's why I'm getting an education. So I could be better equipped and better prepared to push back the kingdom of, God, of, God, of darkness. That's my why. Why make a bunch of money? To advance the kingdom of God. Money's not in the top box. Jesus is. Paul says, nothing else matters but fulfilling Jesus' assignment. Paul shows us top box living. Jesus and only him belongs in that top box of your life. And friends, whether it is marriage or family, freedom and autonomy, reputation, success and security, or something else, when we put something or someone in the box where only Jesus belongs, we miss out on the abundant and contented life. This is the sin of idolatry. We're all guilty of it. And so I'm going to pause here. 
I'm going to invite the worship team up because we're going to move from the sermon into a time of communion. And Paul reminds us that when we take the elements, the juice and the bread, he tells us to evaluate ourselves. The cross of Christ reminds us that Jesus is the be all and end all. And if you're like me, you've replaced him with something or someone else. So like the apostle said, before we come to the table, we give this space to evaluate, to repent. Because Paul's message for the Jews and Greeks alike is the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and having faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul reminds us that only one person belongs in our top box. That's why we break bread today. But take this time to evaluate. Jesus, you are my king. Only one person belongs in that top box of your life. So Paul reminds us that ministry credibility, gospel credibility starts with your life. That only one person belongs in that top box of your life. And lastly, Paul reminds us that Christians are indeed have people, not have not people. Look at how he finishes in verse 24. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Paul's heading for hardship in prison yet he remains a have person. Why? Because of the wonderful grace of God. Friends, grace has got to be one of the most powerful and transforming words in the English language. I mean, think about it. Grace changes the climate of your life. Grace changes the climate of your relationships. Grace changes the climate of your circumstances. If I had to sum up the Bible... I would say this, it's a story of God's grace. See, the word encompasses forgiveness and justice and goodness and freedom and second chances. Grace is like mercy, but it's, it's not mercy. See, mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's mercy. But grace is getting something you don't deserve. It's a gift. See, grace is received. It is unearned. It certainly can't be paid back. You know, I was, <laughs> I often joke with the groom on their wedding day. I was at a wedding yesterday and I remind the groom, you know, I kind of talk him up because I'm like, you know, he's looking good, right? Looking handsome. You know, he's got his nice suit on. I'm like, hey, I've never seen you this cleaned up before. You look good. He gets all pumped up and then I go, but just remember, you're still out of your league. You're still out of your league, and if you remember that, your life and marriage will go good. But, but, but friends, I say that story because imagine you approach your life like that. I'm out of my league. I have an undeserved gift in my life. I haven't earned it. I haven't deserved it. Imagine what difference that posture of grace will make in your life from this idea of never enough 
to I have more than enough because your grace is enough for me. What the leaders needed to be reminded of here and what I think we need to be reminded of today is that indeed Christians are have people. We are have people because in Jesus we get a gift that we don't deserve, new and eternal life. The communion table causes us to remember this, that Jesus indeed is the be all and end all, that Jesus died so that we might live. Jesus did the work. I didn't do the work. I simply received new life because of the work he did. That's grace. Unearned, undeserved, not something we pay back, something we receive. So here's my final question for you as you prepare to come forward and take the elements. I just want you to think about where your life would be today if you never encountered the good news of God's grace? Where would your life be today if you never encountered the good news of God's grace? Because if you're like me, and if you're like the Apostle Paul, that'll stop you. Because though life isn't easy, and though relationships aren't all figured out, and though hardship awaits, God's grace shines on my life. I was a broken, insecure, lost boy, and God located me, and he gave me new life. And I live in abundance, not scarcity, not because of anything I've done, but because of God's grace and what Christ has done for me. And friends, his life, his grace shines on me. And if you've received it, his grace shines on you. That's why we participate in communion. Because grace indeed changes everything. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.